Greetings and welcome to another Meet Kevin Report. It's fantastic to have you back. It is a Meet Kevin Report 123 on July 24th. We just got data in on import prices within the last 10 seconds. Import and export prices actually. And it is good news. Uh, import prices month over month, the survey said, negative 0.1%. Actual negative 0.2%. Import prices excluding petrol month over month. Expectation said 0.2. We ended up getting 0.3 to the downside, both of them to the downside. Uh, we uh, got a little bit, uh, we just got a revision coming through the tape here. Looks like the prior import price index read was revised uh, up slightly though, from negative 0.6 to negative 0.4. So it looks like a little bit of a give back there without prior revision. Import prices year over year at 6.1% to the downside. That's from uh, 5.7 in the prior with a slight revision. Uh, and then we have export prices month over month. The expectation was a 0.1 to the downside and we ended up getting 0.9 to the downside. So substantially a lower export prices than expected with the year over year export price index coming in at uh, about negative 12%. Absolutely remarkable. So uh, large deflationary numbers here on import and export numbers just out within the last minute. Then obviously, if you haven't seen it yet, it is worth looking at what just happened with bank earnings. Let's quickly go through some of the uh, summaries that we got from the JPM and Wells Fargo earnings. They can be a good tool for understanding what's going on in the economy. And I figure the best to do is get right into them. So JP Morgan provision for credit losses does come in a little higher than expected. We were looking for 2.9. We ended up getting, I'm sorry, we were looking for 2.62. We ended up getting $2.9 billion. We've got a return on equity of 20% versus the expectation of 16.3%. So a lot more profit uh, over, uh, or, or, uh, over at JP Morgan than expected. Net interest income coming in at 21.88 versus expectations for 21.17. We also have cash. Uh, let's see here. Total deposits at 4.2 trillion. Estimate was 4.44, so a little less than expected. Loans coming in higher than expected at 1.3 trillion. The estimate was 1.24. We've got investment banking revenue coming in at 149 versus 138 expected. Net charge-offs coming in at 1.41 billion, roughly in line with the 1.4 expected. Trading revenue comes in a little soft at 2.45 billion versus the 2.51 expected for JP Morgan. They uh, do indicate uh, probable changes to come for banking liquidity, especially as uh, the impacts of higher interest rates are still yet to really be felt. They also caution, as you would expect every bank to do, uh, the impact of potential regulatory change on the banking system after the banking crisis at the beginning of the year. Let's see here. JP Morgan also took an after-tax gain of $1.8 billion on First Republic. That's at least what they're writing up on uh, their, uh, their income statement. We've got, let's see here, almost all lines of our business saw continued growth. Some commentary coming here. Looking for a little bit more from JPM. Uh, and Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon says consumers are spending, quote, albeit a little more slowly. 
Now, I think that's also fascinating because this is important for analyzing, hey, what direction do we think we might actually end up going in terms of a recession? A lot of fear right now that we might be going straight into a recession. And a recession is generally driven by the consumer with 70 to 72% of the economy driven by consumers. Uh, that fluctuates between 69 to 72% depending on the year. And uh, obviously a slowdown in consumer spending could lead to a recession. Right now, Goldman Sachs has us at about a 15% chance of recession with Bloomberg economists, an average of uh, consensus of economists, having us around 65% in terms of a chance of recession. A lot of this obviously having to do with the inversion of the yield curve, and then of course, some of the expectations that the uh, tightening to come that is still to be felt from the Fed's tightening cycle is still very great. Uh, there are salient risks in the immediate view, says uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, even as the economy remains resilient. Uh, I, I think you have to also remember that to some extent, the banks want to signal like, hey, things are still fragile. Don't overregulate us now. Do that at some point in the future. Let us keep raking in the tendies in the meantime. <laughs> good, good for them. We've got a significant uncertainty in net interest income outlook, but they're still doing well. Early delinquency rate, quote, more or less at pre-COVID level. Uh, they are seeing a delinquency normalization, not a deterioration. And they don't particularly expect to tighten credit conditions any for, like any more than they already have, says uh, the CFO over at JPM. Uh, and they do think they actually might see a little more growth in headcount this year, which is actually positive, uh, again, towards uh, an economic driver, that maybe 2022's layoffs were really just a rejiggering, sort of a reorganization of where people wanted to work. So let's look at Wells Fargo now. That was JPM. And let's do a quick review of Wells Fargo. Let's see how they compare. And uh, there were any key takeaways here uh, from good old Wells Fargo. All right, so here we go. Wells Fargo comes in with a revenue set of 20.53 billion, beats the 20.13 expected. Provision for credit losses, a little higher than expected uh, as well, 1.71 bill versus the 155. Total average of all deposits does come in as expected, 1.35 trillion. We've got uh, net interest income of 13.16 billion uh, versus 12.89, so the bank's doing very, very well. Uh, you've got uh, plenty of plenty of income coming into the banks and uh, earnings per share of buck twenty-five over at Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo has not seen significant losses in the office portfolio yet. This is really despite a lot of fears of uh, of uh, losses in office, although I wonder how many of these offices are really marked to market. Uh, a lot of office buildings really expected to suffer somewhere around a 30 to 40% markdown. Commercial banking at 3.37 billion versus estimates of 3.28. Provision for credit losses, 1.71, we talked about that. Wells Fargo did repurchase about 100 million shares, and uh, both banks uh, jumping here after uh, their earnings and remarks. Uh, some of the notes were uh, that the CFO of Wells Fargo thinks we are, quote, still very early in the commercial real estate cycle. That could be why they're defending the idea of not yet taking any kind of mark-to-market losses. Real estate does tend to move significantly slowly. 
Commercial real estate outside office is performing quite well. This is true. We've seen that rebound since Jan 1. Consumer spend has, quote, largely, or sorry, consumer spend is largely driving the decline in deposits that they're seeing. So people are still running down their deposits, and what are they doing? Certainly not saving. That'd be crazy. They are spending. So uh, that gives us a little bit of a look into Wells Fargo and JP Morgan, uh, both of these indicating a strong and continuing to be strong economy. This lines up with the import and export prices we just got that came in lower than expected. We will have inflation expectations coming out from the University of Michigan uh, in about an hour or 20 minutes, uh, 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. You did have a drop in the five-year break-even. Five-year break-even did drop to 2.15, which is fantastic news. And if you haven't noticed yet, look at the massive move in the 10-year. The 10-year dropped from over 4%. We were about 4.06 just a couple days ago. And then after we get CPI and PPI coming in super low, and then Bullard throws in the towel and quits, what ends up happening? Boom. Tenure comes right back down, 3.78. What a crash in uh, those yields. That's actually great. That's going to drive those mortgage rates down again, and it's slowly going to put pressure on that dollar as well. Although the dollar's been pretty dang resilient. Uh, some folks are actually looking at the dollar as potentially a very good short at this time. Uh, the, the dollar was also great for shorting uh, after last summer, and I was actively shorting the dollar for a period of time. And that's mostly just as we expect interest rates to fall, we expect the desirability of the dollar to be lower. Uh, however, there could be a limit to that, uh, given uh, uh, given how strong it's been so far. So personally, am I jumping up and down about shorting the dollar more right now? No, mostly because I think there are better opportunities still in actual stocks. Uh, so uh, that does it for an intro here with banking and prices. Let's now jump on over to some analysis. Okay, let's see what we have here. We have, uh, I want to get into some of this inflation analysis I've saved up for us. Okay, here we go. There we go. Stand by for some, we, we need like some music in the meantime. Like standby music. You know what you need is you, you need uh, the walking music from Lost. Did anybody, did anybody remember watching that? Lost? That was such a great show. So awesome. All right, you ready? Now we're going to talk about the bad news from the CPI report. And we're going to be going through a piece from Barclays. Uh, Barclays indicates that the June CPI report gave us some good news, but not all of it. And we'll go into some of their argument here, but let's look at a little bit of their preview. In their preview, they're like, wow, Kevin's courses on building your wealth, link down below, are amazing. And there's a code expiring in about a week and a half. Oh, it actually says, while core prices eased materially in June, we are reluctant to take too much signal from this, given much of the slowing materialized in volatile categories. Our core CPI year-over-year -year forecast stands 0.2 percentage points lower at 3.6 in December 2023, reflecting June's downside surprise and is unchanged at 2.6 for December 2024. Uh, yeah. So why are they, uh, what do they mean with this potentially volatile sector and what kind of red flags does this set up for inflation? Let's dive into the report together. Here it is. 
The June CPI data was softer than we had anticipated, with core inflation easing 28 bips versus, uh, to uh, just 0.16 month over month. That's great, by the way. You actually go deep into that 0.2, what did we get? We had a 0.16 that was rounded up. That's fantastic. That's very, very low. Uh, however, they say, a good chunk of this slowing, particularly on the services side, materialized from an outside outsize, excuse me, decline in airfares and lodging away from home prices, which together deducted 10 bips from core inflation in June. A decline in used car prices explained the remainder of the deceleration. With June's reading uh, on a three-month annualized pace for core CPI shifting lower, having previously run, uh, or sitting now at 0.3, previously at 0.4. So what are they basically saying here? Well, what they're saying is, look, if we just look at the 13-bip decline that uh, you got from lodging away from home combined with airfares, we've got to consider that these could return with a vengeance in the next CPI report. This is somewhat relative to what we've talked about even before the CPI report came out, where I argued there is a risk that the amount of travel that's happening right now in uh, Europe or uh, really around the world, uh, Asia, uh, you know, Asian travel, so we're looking at people going to Japan, uh, visiting Hong Kong, visiting Macau, coming from the Koreas to America, going from America to Europe, all this. This travel is likely to be much greater than the seasonal adjustments expect for July and August. And so I actually agree that I think there are some risks to inflation in the short term. I think we'll end up getting a little bit of a hump and coming through that. Uh, it's worth looking at the dates that relates to, and then we'll keep going here with um, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Barclays piece here. <laughs> so the dates on the July report, August 10th, right? I would write that on your calendar. So August 10th, we'll get the July CPI report, and then September 13th, you'll be getting the August report. And you can see that on screen here. Uh, this is the uh, schedule of releases for CPI. Okay, jumping back over to inflation. Core inflation, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, so we view slowing, also sl slowing rent. We view slowing in rent and owner's equivalent inflation in June, uh, although only a few basis points lower than May, as a constructive development consistent with our baseline expectation of a gradual deceleration in housing rents inflation. So, so that's good. Even though rent has gone up a lot, we are seeing a softening in how much it is continuing to rise. And that's a big anchor for CPI. However, Barclays argues that they don't expect the declines of uh, this magnitude in airfares and hotel costs to repeat. And therefore, they don't think the pace of slowing in services inflation is really sustainable in just the coming months they're warning here. And I think they're right. Uh, and I would really pay attention to this as an investor, that if we have some short-term hiccups because of the next two CPI reports, you really have two ways to play it. One, you could sit on the sidelines, but you potentially miss the run up to these reports, especially if earnings are good, right? I mean, you could sell right now and get out before or many company earnings and just avoid the risk of earnings and avoid the risk of, of those two CPI releases. Uh, however, then you also potentially miss the upside. It's, it's, it's likely to be a more, dare I say, transitory hump uh, that we end up going through with the next two CPI reports. There's a very strong argument for just not doing anything. Uh, don't sell, hold on to your positions if they fall during earnings, 
buy more, if they fall after those CPI reports, buy more, uh, with, with the belief that everything will be okay just on the other side. And once we actually start getting into maybe a, a September uh, read for inflation, which would be October 12th, or an October read, this is, you know, when pretty much everyone's back to school, uh, in terms of, you know, students, obviously. October CPI comes out November 14th. Anywho, continuing here. So core goods deflation, let's take a look at this. Core goods, or sorry, yeah, core goods inflation slipped back into deflation, led by used car prices. That's fantastic. Super core measures of inflation eased materially, but we caution against reading into this too much because of that airfares and hotel costs. While today's CPI data brought good news on the inflation front, we expect the FOMC to look through the fluctuation of these volatile categories to basically continue hiking by another 25 bips. And this is broadly expected at this point. Now, as far as expectations, uh, well, for CPI going forward, we, we already saw these, but here's a graphic example of what they expect for year-over-year uh, -year inflation. And as those base effects become a little uh, less traumatic, remember, we just compared from June, uh, the peak of inflation, we just compared, here, I'll draw that. So June peak, right there. That's what we just compared to. And so as these base effects start coming down, it's going to look like we're having less of a drop in inflation, we're making less progress. But that's okay, remember, even though you've got inflation expected to bottom around September of 2024 by Barclays, you actually don't have JPOW thinking inflation is going to bottom uh, by, by really this point. Uh, he thinks it's going to take well into 2025. He might end up being right about that. So uh, we've got uh, we've got some charts over here, and okay, here's a little bit of dissent. So what do we have over here? Uh, we see the potential for core prices to accelerate slightly in July. Honestly, even a slight acceleration, not a big deal at all. And this is, we already covered this. Okay, perfect. Let me get to another piece here on inflation that we have, because I've saved a few pieces on inflation. So this was Barclays, and uh, this was a good one. Here's a Goldman Sachs piece on the uh, recession watch tracker and a turning point for core. So we're gonna give that, we're gonna sort of pit these analysts against each other a little bit. Uh, let's look at wage growth, jolts, and inflation here, just to get a good economic read here, <coughs> to the extent that these reports actually provide you a good economic uh, read. So here we've got our jobs worker gap based on average jolts and alternative measures of job openings was unchanged at 3.2 million in June. That's how many more uh, people you have who are, uh, or, or how many more job openings you have versus how many people are actually unemployed on a, a gap of 3.2 million. That's above the 2 million estimate that uh, they think is necessary for the Fed to feel like the market is likely more in balance. Uh, this is down from a peak a 5.7 million of a gap in March of 2022 when the Fed started hiking. Initial claims declined to 248K last month. We've got average hourly earnings growth remained flat at 4.4% on a one-month annualized basis and increased to 4.7 on a three-month annualized basis compared to 4.3 prior. Uh, this this was that jobs report that we got, right? The jobs report did show a little bit of a, a tick up in some of those uh, hourly earnings, which is good for workers. It just it makes everybody a little bit nervous about, okay, how much is that going to end up feeding through pricing? Core CPI inflation slowed. We know that. 
However, this was interesting. Web-based measures of new tenant rent growth increased at a 3.1% annual rate in May, suggesting the slower pace of shelter inflation was likely to continue as the gap between rents for new and continued uh, new and continuing leases continues to narrow. Uh, so this is widely known. We've known that there would be about a six-month lag in when we actually end up seeing this, the slower rent growth show up in CPI. And we're just now at the beginning of that showing up, that lag showing up. So it's very good. Market is now pricing in more hikes in uh, the third quarter and fewer cuts in uh, the fourth quarter of 2023. Obvious, uh, most cuts aren't really being priced in until 2024, uh, either March or May for the Fed's U-turn. Let's go a little bit more into detail here. Goldman Sachs uh, actually puts our odds of a recession at 25%. I think I may have mistakenly said 15% earlier. But anyway, 12-month recession odds remain at 25% versus the 65% probability you've got from Bloomberg estimates. So uh, here are uh, the 12-month-ahead recession probability charts. And they give you a little bit of a breakdown on uh, the how the Bloomberg consensus has changed over time versus Goldman. You can actually see Goldman has had a little bit of a downtrend over here. If I, let's go ahead and draw. There we go. We'll go with, I'd say you've got a slight, oh, whoops. Come on. There we go. Slight downtrend over here on Goldman expectations dropping from as high as about 35% to about 25%. And the Bloomberg consensus has really been bobbing around just over 60% for odds of a recession. Hard data suggests activity growth has rebounded to uh, an above potential pace. Uh, above the first uh, half of 2023. And, uh, and and that growth does remain positive, but below potential. It's okay. That's kind of what you want. You don't want runaway growth because then uh, the Federal Reserve keeps going down the Bullard path. Okay, we talked about labor market rebalancing. And let me see. I've got a couple more notes in this piece here. Wage growth remaining flat. This just graphically shows you the wage growth via monthly wage surveys and the Indeed wage tracker. I like these tools because they're slightly good leading indicators as well, uh, which help us uh, understand what's to come for future BLS reports. This is why you have a lot of people looking right through the hot BLS jobs report that we got uh, previously here. So uh, nice, nice declines on chart here uh, in wage growth. I wanna be clear. That's still a growing wage. Still means people are making more money. Uh, however, it does uh, it does mean at a slower pace. Uh, despite that little tick up we had, those leading indicators are looking good. And the bond market, here we go. <clears throat> this is what uh, what what uh, Goldman is seeing currently priced in for the bond market. Currently, the bond market is pricing in 27 bips of hikes in uh, here the third quarter. Uh, versus 19 in mid-June. This is basically fully pricing in the next rate hike. Even after these two soft reports, we had a lot of Fed speak talking about, look, we're going to get that other 25 BPs. And so what ends up happening? Of course, the market essentially fully prices it in. This is why we always say, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, that is, uh, is, it, uh, is it the market setting what rates are going to end up doing? Or is it... Uh, the Fed telling the market what it wants uh, and then the market aligning to that and then the Fed turning around and saying, well, we're just doing what the market wants. It's kind of entertaining. 
so uh, let's see here. I, I would like to also, oh, we'll talk, we'll jump into that in a moment. So the bond market is now pricing in, uh, okay, we talked about that. Uh, one basis point of cuts are being priced in for Q4, 25 bips of cuts in Q1 2024, 44 bips of cuts in uh, Q2 2024, and uh, almost a full percentage point by the end of 2024 priced in. So market expectations for the Fed funds rate, little change despite uh, these weaker inflation reports. Great, absolutely fantastic. This is all relatively good news on inflation, gives us a nice uh, warning as well, which I think is very reasonable. So we went through Barclays, we went through uh, Goldman Sachs response, and uh, that, uh, that it, it, Deutsche Bank did also give us a little bit of an argument on this. Take a look at some of what they have to say about inf uh, disinflation. They argue here, we have been, uh, we've had a bullish bias on uh, Euro USD pairs throughout the year, but tactically look to profit in early May. This is their FX piece where basically, they, they, you know, they talk about uh, uh, their, their foreign exchange here. Uh, and they're really driven by what's going on with inflation data. So I love looking at the FX pieces because I can, I can glean their, uh, their inflation ideas on this. Uh, and I want to read you what they said. Quick reminder, if you are a course member, you can get a pretty big discount on shadowing me if you're interested. Uh, when we go look for real estate, you can come with us. And that uh, can all be done through the Meet Kevin website. Uh, we will align how many courses that you've bought. And the more courses you bought, the bigger discount you get. It's really just a huge give back, uh, in my opinion, to the course members. Uh, obviously, there's little cost associated with it, but uh, we, we think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity for course members and uh, encourage you to be a course member and then check out Shadowing if you'd like. You can always email us at staff at meetkevin.com if you have questions, but otherwise, uh, the website's been pretty great at, uh, at helping everyone. Today's U.S. inflation print, uh, so th this is obviously... Uh, you know, a, a piece here from uh, from yesterday with PPI and otherwise. But what do we have here? Quote, we feel increasingly confident that U.S. disinflation is well underway. We've been arguing this is the direction of travel for some weeks now and have highlighted numerous underlying measures of CPI that have quickly been rolling over in recent months. With the latest U.S. CPI print, these are likely to improve further. We would point to the Atlanta Fed sticky CPI metric, which is now annualizing below 2%. They actually uh, provide that chart here. This is the Atlanta Fed sticky core CPI X shelter. And look at that. It's actually under the 2% Fed goal. The sticky core has basically completely rolled over. This is fantastic, fantastic news. It's great. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's see what else we have here. Second, the disinf okay, uh, oh yeah, yeah, here. Second, the disinflation process looks incredibly benign. We have been arguing that the most bearish outcome for the dollar is a combination of declining U.S. inflation under relatively okay growth. In a world where supply is improving, both of these things can happen at the same time. In this context, the sharp contraction in global manufacturing does not have to be interpreted as a hard landing signal, but as a healthy rebalancing of po post-COVID excesses. Now, that is a fire line right there, an absolutely fire line. I really want you to pay attention to that paragraph right there. Honestly, uh, screenshot it because it's so good. Uh, I want to explain why it's so good. One of uh, every so often, well, every so often, every day, I should, I should say every so often, every day I'm basically looking at 
What are the Bears looking at? What are the Bears fearful of? And I'll tell you, one of the arguments that keeps coming up beyond the inverted yield curve uh, is, well, just look at PMIs or, uh, or look at our, uh, uh, you know, those are your, uh, your, your PMIs uh, or your purchasers managers index uh, in terms of purchases uh, for, for wholesale. You can look at uh, your ISM, your Institute for Supply Side Management, manufacturing reports, uh, your S&P manufacturing reports. And when you look at all of these manufacturing reports, you basically have a recession in China for manufacturing and a massive slowdown going on in the United States as well. It's a lot of bears are saying, look, this this is bad. The only time this usually happens, these sort of negative reads, is when we have a big recession coming up. But where they could be going wrong is you're comparing to the massive boom of manufacturing that you had in 2021 and 2022. So of course you're going to have some kind of normalization. And that normalization shows up as a negative. It's the same thing as a money, the money supply. Of course, when the money supply stops expanding, guess what happens? The chart goes from an expansion of the money supply to a contraction of the money supply, and therefore the big percentage chart that people and the bears like to use goes from a big high to a negative. It's not a big deal. It's totally what you would expect the data to do. I think really, we'll, we'll, I'm very confident in this. I'm very confident that we will look back in seven years, in 2030, and we'll look back and go, well, no, duh, inflation was caused by printing all that money so rapidly. And then we'll go, well, no, duh, it ended up being transitory. That didn't end up forever changing the way our economy functions. Duh, we ended up going back to uh, disinflation and potentially even deflation and rate cuts. Duh, we ended up going back to potentially ZERP, right? zero interest rate policy, or NERP, negative interest rate policy. Uh, <laughs> I know there are a lot of people that, that, that tell me, and I get it, I get it. A lot of people tell me, go, Kevin, you're, you're, you're smoking it again. I, I, I don't. But anyway, they say that. They're like, we're never going back. We're never going back to those levels. I'm like, oh, okay. Talk to me in 2030 then. We'll see. So, uh, okay. Anyway, in all ongoing, a confirmation that the U.S. disinflation process is underway in a soft landing uh, in the conditions... Uh, that are most important to uh, the macro for the rest of the year, basically looking good. Uh, we highlighted the Bank of Japan as the next biggest dollar risk. <laughs> the Bank of Japan, you just gotta love them. I, I still love the Bank of Japan making a joke in Portugal about how, hey, you know, we're trying to build credibility by printing money. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, that gives us a little bit of a breakdown on Deutsche Bank's response. So this gives us really a, a triple set look into inflation. And really, if the worst is that we might go through a couple months of warmer inflation rates, hotter inflation rates for July and, uh, and, and um, August, then so be it. I don't know if it's enough of a catalyst to say, that's it, get out. It still feels like there's so much, and we're seeing this data-wise too, fund managers are still underweight equities, hedge funds are still underweight. Uh, you've got you've had some sentiment changes towards positive, bullish, uh, and, and optimistic, but you're still mostly under-allocated to stocks. Uh, and that is going to lead to uh, not only a boon to a recovery in stocks, but you'll also see these, what I like to call these rolling short squeezes. Uh, I believe that they generally, the market just sort of short squeezes slowly over time. But you want to see a massive short squeeze happening right now. Just look at uh, Nikola, for example. 
you know, Nikola was a, a buck twenty uh, just just like yesterday morning. Uh, it closed at two twenty. Now the thing's squeezing up uh, another twenty three percent here in the pre market. Now whether it'll hold is is you know going to be dependent on how the rest of the market goes uh, moves. You know we've got some bread this morning, giving back a little bit of some of yesterday's gains. But uh, point is. With, with this inflation story going away, it's an easy market to just have everything float up. And you're just going to get these rolling explosions of short squeezes everywhere. It's incredible. So uh, that gives us a little bit of insight on inflation. All right, let's write that down. Okay. Next, we got a piece on the Fed. I'm going to take a sip here, though, and listen to CNBC for a moment. They are is you have to compare apples to apples. And you just realize that all those categories I just gave you, these are substantially in excess of everybody else's. Yep. So you could just say, well, you know, what is this average unit? You know, what, whatever is the amount of money they have under management. Uh, it, they may well, listen, sound Wells like Fargo in their piece, their quick update on the oh. earnings. Goliath is so, so winning. Right. <laughs> That's what it is. And, you know, Carl, it, one of the things that's so hard about today is you'll have all the major banks reporting, and they're really difficult because there's a lot of lines, like a return on common equity, that people say, well, what the heck is that? I just want people to realize, let's just say these were semiconductors. This, this is NVIDIA. It's just faster than everybody else. Well, we're, not, we're not getting guidance changes like that, but yeah. No, but, but I'm just, I want to say no. that, that there's NVIDIA and then there's everybody else. Right. I have to say that when I look at J.P. Morgan, there's J.P. Morgan, and then there's everybody else. Uh, Charge-offs, yeah. obviously, we were going to look for it going in, up 34 basis points quarter on quarter. 2-4 is still better than we were uh, this quarter in 19. Right. Three and a quarter. Right. But, you know, look, I think this First Republic's already good, already a winner. A net interest income, 21.98 billion. I know it's only a five versus Wells. Wells had a better number than I. On net interest income, yeah, they Wells did. was better. Yeah, Wells was definitely you better mean in terms that. of the increase. Yeah, yeah, you know, much much better. But I just think that you take a look at this and you say, all right, let's say you didn't have intense regulation of the banks, you and let's say you had banking like you do have in the United Kingdom, like J.P. Morgan, like that'd be one of like four banks, and they would be the big bank. This is if you go back, if you go back to nineteen to nineteen oh six to nineteen thirty two. JP Morgan. And then everybody else? Here we are back in that period. And what did they call JP Morgan? Which is now a. a All right. Well, we're going to pull back here on a Jimbo here for a moment. Uh, it's just, uh, just a little bit of rambling. Uh, but I need to do my own uh, little bit of rambling. Uh, and I'm going to do that about crypto quickly. So let's talk about Ripple. Uh, so we're going to talk Ripple. Let's do that. Okay. All right. Yesterday has been heralded as a massive day for the crypto community as essentially social media and everywhere is a buzz over the idea that Ripple was not ruled a security by a judge overseeing the case of Ripple versus the SEC. And this has been great news for the crypto community. We saw a lot of coins immediately jump on the news, tokens jump on the news. We saw excitement across the board for the crypto community, specifically because 
individuals, most individuals and most of the exchanges that we see do not want to hear crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any token or coin or anything to fall under the purview of the SEC's jurisdiction. Now, generally, the test for whether or not a, uh, you know, something is a security is whether or not there is a reasonable expectation of any kind of participation of profits uh, in, in, in investing in uh, whatever you're exchanging. Uh, and so, for example, if you invest into Tesla stock, you expect some reasonable uh, either capital appreciation for the uh, value of your stock going up because the company's performing better, uh, or you're expecting some form of dividends uh, in the form of uh, earnings distributions, right? So uh, in this case, as Cameron Winkelwass put out here on Twitter, uh, the sale of uh, XRP on exchanges uh, is not a security, which means the sale of all cryptos on exchanges are not securities. And the SEC and Gary Gensler have no jurisdiction, jurisdiction, jurisdiction over them. This is a watershed moment that regulates the SEC, or relegates, I'm sorry, the SEC to traditional finance and makes it a di dinosaur regulator. Bye bye. All right. Obviously, the Winklevoss twins and Gemini are going to have a very, very pro crypto approach here. And let's take a look at just the segment of the ruling that they highlighted, and let's analyze if we think Cameron Winklevoss is actually as aggressively correct, and is the crypto community 100% right in how we're looking at this ruling? Don't get me wrong. Still, and either way you slice it, this is a win for the crypto community. But let's go a little bit deeper on this. So. Having considered the economic reality of programmatic sales, the court concludes that the undisputed record does not establish the third Howie prong. The third Howie prong is a reference to the Howie test for is something a security? Here, we get an explanation of that prong. Whereas, the institutional buyers reasonably expected that Ripple would use the capital it received from its sales to improve the XRP system and thereby increase the price of XRP. Programmatic buyers could not reasonably expect the same. Indeed, Ripple's programmatic sales were blind bid-ask transactions, and programmatic buyers could not have known that their payments of money went into Ripple or any other seller of XRP. Therefore, the vast majority of individuals who purchased XRP from digital asset exchanges did not invest their money into Ripple at all. An institutional buyer who purchased XRP directly from Ripple uh, was different, but the economic reality is that a programmatic buyer stood in the same shoes as a secondary market purchaser who did not know to whom or what it was paying its money. Okay, let me translate this to English so we can understand this. And I'm going to tell you where there's a problem, because there is a problem here. I'm going to talk about that. Reminder, if you like my perspectives, make sure to check out the programs on Building Your Wealth. We got a real estate investing course that's amazing, zero to millionaire real estate investing. Everybody should be in that course. Stocks and Psychology of Money, fantastic course on stocks. We do fundamental analysis every single day, teach you everything we know about stocks. 
Uh, it's not just me, it's the entire team as well. It's great. Uh, and then also check out the do-it-yourself property management, check out the sales courses. And a big one that we just released is how to make more money and get SH9T done faster featuring AI, which is a really good way to improve your income if you're an employee or an entrepreneur. It really appeals to everyone who's a worker. How can you be more efficient? How can you make more money? And ultimately, how can you thereby build more wealth? So check out those links down below. We've got a coupon expiration in about a week and a half. So what is this in English? So in English, this is basically saying, look, people who just bought XRP on the exchange were basically clueless people who had no idea that their purchasing of this of XRP would actually benefit the company. And since they didn't know them adding buying pressure to XRP would benefit the company because, you know, they're just buying it on an exchange, then obviously it can't be a security. Okay, let's, let's pull that back for a moment. There's almost no difference between buying, uh, a, you know, XRP from digital, digital asset, ex asset exchanges here and buying a stock through a broker on the New York Stock Exchange. I see virtually no difference in that. So I think this is a very weak argument that the judge made here. It's obviously fantastic for the crypto community, but I would be concerned that a future judge or appeals court is going to nail this and go, wait a minute, how could you say stocks basically that trade every single day in the stock market and trade through an exchange or a security, but then something that trades through an exchange just because it trades through an exchange via, you know, well, uh, the, the XRP sales is not a security. That I don't know is the best argument the judge is making. The judge says, hey, well, people didn't know if that they were, that, that they're adding buying pressure to XRP, increased the potential value of those coins, which made uh, Ripple essentially have the potential for more funding and therefore an improvement of the actual Ripple uh, company and uh, ultimately the return of potential capital appreciation to XRP. I think that's a very bizarre argument to argue, oh, well, people, they were just buying on exchanges. They had no idea so that, that you know, it would benefit Ripple. They didn't know. Of course they did. Come on, man. Everybody, when you buy a token or a coin, you know you're investing in it, not because you want the coin uh, or token, it's because you want capital appreciation. Duh. So I think this, uh, while it's a fantastic ruling for crypto, uh, I think it is a very, very weak ruling. So again, it is fantastic. I want to be very clear about that. It is good for crypto. Go, going in the right direction here. But it's very weak. Uh, I like I, when I read this. I I was uh, I was on the plane, and uh, and, and to me I, I found this uh, uh, bizarre. Uh, so uh, you know we'll, we'll go we'll go through uh, a little more of this. But uh, initially, my first reaction to this was okay. This is uh, this is weak. It's probably going to get ripped apart in the future. Uh, but let's go get the full ruling here. I want to get that uh, the full ruling. Uh, so we can get through a little bit more than just what uh, Winklevoss uh, mentioned here. So we're going to pull this whole thing up. Give me one second here. I'm going to take a moment. Uh, I just, I, I had it, but I accidentally closed it. Okay, here we go. I got it. 
give me another 20 seconds or so here. There it is. Put in my good notes. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. Importing. All right, here we go. And going to, oh, Mr. Winklevoss. All right. Stand by. Almost there. Okay, here it is. Okay, so this is the full ruling without the Winklevoss highlighting right on the page where we were. So now take a look at this. This is, this is where we keep going, and uh, the judge actually does somewhat address the speculation argument, which I thought was useful as well. And they, this is their argument. They say, further, it is not enough for the SEC to argue that Ripple explicitly targeted speculators or that Ripple understood that people were speculating on XRP as an investment. The, uh, this is because, uh, you know, basically, on the part of the purchaser uh, or the seller uh, does not evidence the existence of an investment contract. Uh, so, and, and they give this example here. Anyone who buys or sells a horse or an automobile hopes to realize a profitable investment, but the expected return is not contingent upon the continuing efforts of another. Now, that's actually really important uh, for, the, uh, for the Howey test because when you invest in Tesla stock, you're expecting a return based on the actual fundamental business improving. Now, generally, it, when, when we're looking at, uh, you know, uh, tokens, let's say on the uh, uh, Ethereum network, we're, we're looking for utility, right? So there could be an argument made that, hey, with utility tokens, uh, or maybe not, we shouldn't call them utility tokens, but um, uh, I'm thinking like not exchange tokens, right? So you've got uh, like, oh my gosh, Voyager's token was really just a, uh, Obviously, now we know potentially a Ponzi, especially after what we saw with Celsius yesterday, uh, which was so sad because the CEOs, uh, basically, of these companies were lying straight to our faces about these. But when we look at uh, uh, Ripple uh, and XRP, I think another judge in the future could make a pretty decent argument that, no, 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 the, the people are buying uh, XRP with the expectation of the underlying system improving, uh, and therefore uh, uh, there being an expectation of profit from this, and maybe it is a security. It's, it's going to be really interesting. So again, for me, I didn't think it was the strongest argument. It is in the right direction, but I look at it as, as, uh, as, as somewhat weak. So I, I wanted to just add sort of my two cents to that. Uh, let me see, there was a little bit more I wanted to look at here as well. Uh, yeah, see, see, look here, they talk, to address it here as well. Programmatic buyers may have purchased XRP with the expectation of profits to be derived from Ripple's efforts. However, the inquiry is an objective one focusing on promises and offers made to investment, uh, investors. It is not a search for the price, precise motivation of each individual participant. This is another example, in my opinion, of a weak argument. It's a very good argument for crypto, but again, weak, because what does it do? It tells you... Ah, uh, look, here's a judge now saying, well, we don't think this is a security because even though some people might want to profit off of the network improving, we're actually not thinking that 
Ripple advertised this as potentially being, uh, you know, a promise of making money, basically, or there being some sort of promise of making money. I, I, I again, I think we've I've made my position pretty clear on this one. Not jumping up and down about it uh, for for a long term point of view because I I think they're gonna hit this one, uh, but we'll we'll keep an eye on this one. Uh, okay, so let's go into. I want to hit this other piece from uh, Nick T that we saw and go into this a little bit. Okay, so let's see. Da, 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 da. Uh, Cart for Coin, I see your comment here on the initial coin offering is the one that had the expectation of profit, not the second party sales. <laughs> I mean, I disagree with that. Every stock you buy in the stock market is a secondary transaction. Uh, it's it's not you're not transacting with the company itself, you're exchanging it with somebody else, right? So the expectation of profit from the first buyer is really the same as the second buyer, and creating that that separation uh, when you compare it to stocks, again, it just seems loose. Okay, so let's see here. Again, don't get me wrong, I like I said, it's great for crypto. I just think it's weak. That's it. That's my opinion. I guess I could just shorten it uh, to that. All right, so let's see here. Let's get into this Fed piece. Okay, 49. All right, here we go. Well, Nick T is back at it again with releasing another Wall Street Journal piece, and boy, he basically nailed what I've been thinking, that this guy's got all the leaks. And the reason I say that is because you could not make it up. Within seven minutes before the CPI release, he tweets out and says, hey, uh, just in case CPI comes in lower than expected, be careful, the Fed might still hike, and, and they're probably still going to hike. They'll end up looking through this. And I thought it was so funny. Because sure enough, and I remember saying it as we're covering the CPI report, I remember saying, oh my gosh, Nick T just tweeted that inflation's, you know, if inflation comes in low, uh, you know, don't get too excited. You know, basically, don't let the stock market moon. And we, we joked that he probably got a message from Jerome Powell that was like, hey man, can you please temper the economy in the event, or markets in the event, uh, inflation comes in low, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and then happens to, right before, right before CPI comes out. It was brilliant. Sure enough, it comes in low. So uh, Nick T has, has a very interesting perspective that I always like paying attention to because mostly I think he, he gets those text messages from good old J-Pow. So what do we have in the latest Nick T piece? Well, that's right here. The outcome of the Federal Reserve's July meeting appears to be all but decided. Many officials signaled in recent speeches and interviews that they support a quarter percentage point increase that lifts interest rates to a 22-year high. Okay, big deal. So you get another 25 bips. Nobody really cares about another 25 bips. I, every time I say that, I get people who leave comments are like, oh my gosh, but wait a minute, Kevin. People do care about another 25. The Fed's gone too far. And go, no, 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 no. Nobody cares. The toy, or you shouldn't care. Another 25, it's not a big deal. What you should care about is how quickly we went from zero to 500 basis points, not another 25. Anyway, the real debate, though, is going to center on what it will take to prompt another rate hike in September or in the fall 
and what kind of guidance the Fed gives. Because remember, it's not only the next meeting, but it's also the next summary of economic projections. The next summary of economic projections comes out in the September meeting. And that's where they're probably going to have to start forecasting some lower uh, or, or, or some, some more guidance on lower rates in the future. Uh, and that'll likely be seen as quite bullish. But uh, let's see what, what else Nick T here says. The Fed last month held benchmark rates steady. This was the pause. Most officials anticipated two more rate hikes this year would be warranted if the economy grew modestly and inflation pressures eased steadily. Despite the better news on inflation released Wednesday, officials are motivated to lift rates this month in part because overall hiring and economic activities since May have been stronger than anticipated. In addition, some officials want to see that inflation continues to ease before ending increases. It's really a way of saying, look, and this is my take, I really think this is a way of massaging expectations. That they want to tell you, look, we're going to keep strong at this, we're going to keep hiking until inflation's down. And that does lead some bears to say, okay, look, we're going to end up uh, seeing the Fed at this for a while because they're not going to stop until they get to 2%. Yeah, they will. They will stop way before they get to 2%. They will stop substantially before that. But again, a lot of the bears use that as ammunition to say, see, look, we're so far away from 2%. But even Jerome Powell himself says, hey, the calculus is very simple. We will lower rates when our formula tells us to. And what's the formula? Well, it's inflation expectations plus some level of restrictive levels equals the FOMC rate. So if some level of restrictiveness is, say, two and a quarter, and inflation expectations are 3%, and you get a combined 5.25% rate. Inflation expectations come down 1%. Uh, now you're at 2%. Rates come down a full 1%. You're about 4.25. Let's keep going with uh, the Nick T piece here. Despite the better news on inflation, okay, we read that one. Uh, so they're bl basically blaming uh, hiring here still being strong. I would say we're close, but still have a little bit of work to do. Uh, this is Michael Barr, that's the vice chair. You've got a Waller saying in a speech Thursday evening in New York that he wants to see evidence that the latest inflation slowdown wasn't a fluke. A recent report warmed my heart, but I've got to make policy with my head, and I can't do that on one data point. You know, I think it's hilarious that they keep talking about one data point when we've literally had, what, six months now of uh, declining uh, inflation? Actually, probably more. So actually probably, you could just go back to last June peak. I mean, basically since then, inflation peaked out. You did have inflation that was a little bit more volatile in the core segments, but otherwise, really the last year has just been a disinflationary story. J-Pow framed last month's decision to hold rates as an effort to give officials more time. Even though several officials wanted to raise last month, Powell secured unanimous support from the rate-setting FOMC committee, in part because officials strongly signaled more raises were likely. Uh, yeah, well, no kidding, more rises. Uh, this was really where we were thinking Jerome Powell made a deal with the Hawks, and the deal was, look, we'll, we'll give us the pause here, but we'll make sure to promise everyone another hike is coming. That's exactly what Jay Powell ended up doing. Quote, I remain very concerned about whether inflation will return to target in a sustainable and timely manner, says Lori Logan. As she's a voting member. What I think is so interesting about this is the timely manner part. Jay Powell's already told us is between now and 2025. It's not this insane rush. 
Anyway, interest rate increases slow the economy through financial markets by lowering asset prices, raising the cost of borrowing. Yeah, well, the whole lowering asset prices part, well, that hasn't really been happening. Uh, people are doing pretty dang a-okay here uh, in terms of asset prices rebounding, whether it's uh, rebounding from the real estate lows that we saw by December or it's the... Uh, the stock market lows that we also saw in about December. Kind of an interesting alignment if you think about it. You had basically a double bottom uh, for both of those in, uh, in December. Okay, let's see what else we have here. There we go. And one sec. There we go. Okay, so uh, Logan said she supported she voted in support of last month's pause, even though she favored an increase because officials delivered an overall package of communications, strongly signaling more rises were needed. See, it just goes to show you, it's like, hey, go tell the market this, and then we can agree to do so. It's, it's all about this communication. Hawks could argue that at this month's meeting that the Fed should be prepared to raise again in September, that would be the two uh, hikes. I've heard from my business contacts in my district that if you think you're going to have to move rates up, just get it done, says Loretta Mester. That's true. That's because there's so much uncertainty created around this idea of like, oh, are they going to hike or not? I think people just, just get to the level and be done with it. It's a very Bullardian argument, although he was interested in getting to anywhere between 6 to 7%, which is remarkably high. Waller said Thursday that if inflation doesn't continue to decline and there aren't signs of a significant slowdown in the economy, then he would favor a second hike in September. The data looks like we're making progress, and consumer uh, prices for July and August resemble the June reading. The data would suggest maybe stopping. Well, we'll see, because again, July and August CPI data we think might be a little warm. Two officials last month thought the Fed wouldn't need to raise rates again. Um, Bostic, he's always in. Let's wait and see. Let's let the policy work. Yeah, again, another 25 here there. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we've all seen inflation be over and over again more persistent and stronger than expected. Powell said at a conference in June. It's true. Well, the other thing, too, is you got to look at the United Kingdom and Germany, where you've seen a little bit of a reacceleration in some of the core numbers. Uh, and that is something that is going to concern us at the, uh, you know, here in America, but also the Fed. Because if, if we get any of those kind of pushes up, and have a little bit of a problem. And now all of a sudden the market has to potentially continue to price in hikes. Then we start getting to you know 5.75 and maybe even 6% before the cycle is done. If you get a reanimation just over the next few months, that's why I think there is going to be that potential for volatility over the next few. So we'll, so we'll watch that very closely. So anyway, this gives us a little bit of uh, an insight into Nick T's latest commentary on uh, the Fed. So, uh, that does it for the Meet Kevin Report today. Uh, we will be back. Thank you so much. Uh, have a wonderful day. Good luck. Hopefully uh, your trades or your long-term buy and holds do well. I'm going to jump over to the course member live stream now. We'll do some analysis together and answer some Q&A. Do that all together, so make sure you come join. Link has been posted for the course member stream, and we'll see you there in about 30 seconds. Thanks so much. Goodbye.